those other hundred other kids. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God. To those, I used to teach a course on how to study the Bible, and um, we used a textbook, which was interesting. It was a, it was completely plagiarized from another professor. Uh, amazing, uh, <laughs> but uh, uh, in it he had um, what he called brain teasers. So each chapter would give you some aspect of, of Bible study, and then at the end there'd be a brain teaser or a set of them for you to apply the principles that were used in the, in the uh, chapter. Uh, and as it came up, he was talking about the importance of um, context and so forth. So one of the brain teasers for that particular chapter was Romans 8.28, a fellow had lost his job. And since all things work together for good, then he knew that he shouldn't take a job that paid the same or lower than he took than he had before. He should only hold out for because God's working together for good. He's he's got to hold out for the better paying job. <coughs> Amen. Uh, so, <laughs> that that's that's the critical point. Kay, Kay hit it on the head. It depends on the definition of good. And folks, this is something we've been belaboring in recent weeks. What is good and who gets to define it? Yeah, and if God gets to define it, what is good? Well, God is good, yes, but he's defined good as what? Whatever he decides. What he thinks is best for us. That's good, yeah. Look, look at Romans 8.28. There's... Something that you need to know about it, it comes in a context. Because I have a doctorate from Dallas Seminary, and I know great and wise things most people don't know. Verse, 20, verse 28 follows a whole series of verses numbered 1 to 27. Amen? Amen. So that's very important that you see that. Um, especially what's on the screen is critical here, uh, because this is an attempt to summarize verses 18 to 39 of the of the 8th chapter. And what is the key point? What, what would that statement boil down to? What is good? Suffering. Suffering. Yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, how can suffering be good? Well, think about anything worthwhile that you've ever done in your life. It's always cost you something. Yes or, or no? Yes, yes. Physical pain has cost you hard work. It's cost you fatigue. It's cost you money. Yes? It's cost you, hard, it's cost you hours and hours and hours of your life. But anything that's worthwhile is costly. Not necessarily. Pardon? Not necessarily. Well, anything that's... Anything that's, yeah, sometimes it's, much of the time, even though uh, uh, you're thinking especially about salvation, we're talking about something, uh, the, the extension of that now, then I've got to know what the good is before I can say what good is, on, in, or to say it differently, I've got to be able to say, suppose I'm a, 
I'm going to be on a football team and I'm going through um, summer practice. That's not good. It's hot. You can dehydrate. Yes? Suppose I'm a musician. Played, I played in orchestras when I was in school, my school years. And we had an orchestra that rehearsed for three hours on Saturday afternoon. <clears throat> Sat no, not Saturday afternoon. No, any other time but Saturday afternoon. But not, please, not Saturday afternoon. I would go on Boy Scout campouts on Friday evening. Have to come in Friday evening because I had to be at rehearsal at 1 o'clock on Saturday afternoon. Now, I enjoyed the performance, if it went well. <laughs> there were times it didn't. <laughs> but but, but uh, I enjoyed the performance when it went well, but it was costly. Yes? Suppose you are getting a, a college degree. It, it's costly. Why would you pay those costs? Why would you pay those prices? Because, because of what you think you're going to get in the end product. Does that make sense to you? So, um, so the 1 o'clock, 1 to 4 practices on Saturday afternoon, I... Oh, I was a teenager. Saturday afternoon was not a time I wanted to be sitting sawing on a fiddle. Yes? But the rehearsals meant better performance, and the performance was worth it. Yes? Paul talks about this in other places. He says athletes exercise. They work out. They pay the price. They, they, they contend according to the rules in order to gain a perishable crown. Yes? Um, so is the perishable crown worth it? Well, if you won the Olympics, it was because you were given free home and free food for the rest of your life by the city that you represented at the Olympics. That would be, from a human point of view, very worthwhile. So I have to know what the goal is before I can tell why the hardship is good. Does that make sense to you? And it's in the passage that's ahead of us that we're going to find out what the goal is. We've been saying a few things about it, and I want to just survey what we did in the last couple of weeks. In verse 18, he lays out the, the, the fundamental truth that he's going to develop through the rest of the book, uh, through, through the rest of the chapter. I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed in us. Then in verses 19 through 27, he talks about the glory that's coming. Uh, the, the greatness of the glory is shown by two great things. The creation is groaning, and that includes us. And interestingly, as we pointed out last week, the Holy Spirit himself is groaning. That, that, that shocks me. I can't quite get over that. But in his intercession for us, he groans as we are undergoing suffering. He groans for us in part, and I'm encouraged by this, Isaiah 63, verse 5, I think it is, says, talking about Israel and the wilderness, in all their afflictions, he was afflicted. That's a great encouragement to me. So God doesn't give us hardship um, 
simply to watch us suffer. He suffers too. <clears throat> You've done this with people in your family, have you not? You see other people suffering? I mean, when you discipline your child, oftentimes yeah. you feel badly that you have to. I, I don't want to have to do this, but it has to be done. And it's going to be costly for both of us, but got to be done. So that's the first thing. He's groaning because we are groaning. And then second, he's groaning because he's praying in such a deeply deep way. He's communing with the Father in such a deep way that you can't even, you can't even verbalize his prayer. But because he searches the minds and hearts, verse 27, he knows the, the, the mind of God. And since he knows the mind of God, he intercedes in a godly way for the saints. So as he's praying for us in the midst of suffering, he's praying for us to achieve the goal that God has set for our suffering. But what is the goal? Get cl- well, yeah, but let, let's let the text tell us. Yeah. Yeah, but let's let the text tell us. <laughs> Hang on. Uh, so we get verse 28. Verse 28 is not a verse I can use to decide which job to take. <laughs> Well, this is a better salary than that one, so God has my good at heart. Amen? So this one must be. Isn't it amazing that pastors, when they leave one church, always go to a bigger church with a better salary? It's just, it shocks me. God's will is always more money and more people. Except for Jesus, who kept getting fewer and fewer and fewer people. Yes, and lived in poverty. Um, so what does Romans 8.28 mean? Well, it's explained by verses 29 and 30. But you don't like verses 29 and 30. They're too Calvinistic. So let's go. Pardon? We're going to be be quite Calvinistic today. So verse verse 28. And we know. Why does he say that at this point? Because we're talking about our groaning in the midst of suffering. Yes? So why do we put up with it? We know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. God is not working for the good for every last human being. He's working for the good for a certain group of people, for those who love him, who are called according to his purpose. Yes? Now that love him should make sense in light of what we've been saying in Romans up to this point. The way I've been defining faith is, if it's right... My, my view is that faith as it, at its heart is loving God with all your heart, soul, and strength. So every believer is a person who loves God. For every believer, for every person who's born again, every person who is justified, God is using the suffering, the all things from 18 to 39 are sufferings. From verses 18 to 39, the all things are sufferings. And he's using those sufferings for our good. We're called according to his purpose. Do you see that? Yes, yes? We miss that. Well, what, what does that mean, we're called according to his purpose? Well, that's verses 29 and 30. What is, what's the first word in verse 29? Four. Four. So we're, we're carrying out the implications of verse 28 in verses 29 and 30. Yes? Four. Whom he did, he also did, to be conformed to the image of his... Son, of his son that he might be the firstborn among many brothers 
Now we can say it, brother. The good is that we will become like Jesus. The good is not that I will have a better job or better salary. The good is that I will be like Jesus. If my becoming like Jesus depends upon my getting that better job, then I will have the better job because it's part of God's plan. I'm called according to his purpose. Do you see it? Are you with me here? But if becoming like Jesus involves having a harder job, maybe with less pay, in which I have to depend on him, then that's the providence of God. Now, how can we say this? How can Paul get away with verse 28? Well, first of all, he's an apostle, so he can say anything and we'll accept it. Yes, and it's in the Bible, so we believe it's the word of God. And, and so we take verse 28 uh, uh, just by itself without thinking about anything in the context. We were listening to, we have uh, Pandora on our television. We were listening to uh, some Christian music this morning as we were getting ready for church. And some fellow whom you would know if I could remember his name, and I'm glad I can't remember his name, but he sang a song. Be still and know that I am the I, I am God, and it was a worship song. God, be still and know that I am God, because He cares for us and He loves us, provides for us. Amen. 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 Except that's not how that verse is ever used in the Bible. I think it's used about three. I think it appears about three times in the Bible, and every time it appears, it's at the end of a series of judgments on nations. They're inclined to explain why they've been doing what they've been doing. And God says, shut up and know that, let me paraphrase it, shut up and acknowledge that I am God. Judgment's coming. You are doomed. Shut up. You have no defense to give. This is not a worship song. <laughs> this, is, this, is, this is a courtroom song. For the, for the defendant who's just been convicted and there's not a song, single word that can be said again in his defense. Not a word. It's what we do with Romans 8.28, unfortunately. We can use it rightly, and we often do, but we often use it improperly. So I've got to talk about, well, how can Paul get away with saying that all sufferings work together for good? And notice, as we've been working through this passage, this is not suffering simply under persecution. Well, I haven't been persecuted, so I, this isn't true. No, suffering. Some of you have physical ailments <laughs> um, that cause you distress. Yes? It's part of the goodness of God that's preparing you for the image of Christ. What are the things that cause suffering in our, in our lives? Cowboys having not won a Super Bowl. <laughs> Other people, other people, other people can cause suffering in our lives. Yes, Are, is that included under the all things? Yeah. What else can cause suffering in our lives? Poor choices. Poor Yeah, sin can. What happens when we sin? What does God do with us when we sin? He loves us. And sometimes He disciplines us. Sometimes, uh, sometimes he forgoes discipline because we know he knows we cannot bear it. Yes, but he forgives. What'd you say, brother? Chastens. Chastens. Um, so that chastening leads to 
suffering, and that leads to change toward toward Christ-likeness. There's something else. There's at least one other category of of things that can cause uh, suffering in our lives. Yeah. That's kind of in the category of other people. How about Satan? Well, the main problem is my sin. It's not Satan. Um, But Satan is part of that. Satan himself can cause suffering in our lives. And when he does, folks, the outcome, according to Paul, is that we become like Christ. Isn't that what happened with Job? I mean, yeah. Yeah, this is exactly the point with Job. But here's, here's, the, here's the great news, folks. Let Satan do his worst. All he does is end up serving the purpose of God to make you like Christ. Now, how does that happen? How can that possibly be true? Well, we saw it in verse 26 and 27. Look back. How can it possibly be true that even what Satan does in our lives ends up serving the purpose of God? Satan doesn't seem to catch on, does he? No, he doesn't. Yeah, but look at verses 26 and 27. Yeah, yeah, I'm sorry, you can't hear in the back. Uh, that, that's already come <laughs> up. Yeah, no, but Job is, is right on target with all this. As an example of Satan at work, but within God's sovereign plan. But look in verses 26 and 27. What does it say? The Holy, the Holy Spirit is interceding for us when we're suffering at the hands of Satan so that good will come from it. Now, the Holy Spirit prays in a godly way for the saints, yes? Then that means, as we said last week, when I'm suffering, wait, look, look there at verse, um, <clears throat> at verse 26, in the same way that the Spirit helps our weakness, for we don't know what we, we, we uh, should pray for as we ought. When I get into suffering, the one thing I pray for is to get out of it. And the one thing the Holy Spirit prays for is that I get Christ-likeness out of it. I'm going to get something out of it, either me or Christ-likeness. <laughs> Are you with me here? What are you thinking, Sixto? Well, that idea in mind is that we should pray that's okay here's what I here's my prescription Lord but at the end of the day thank you for getting me closer yeah yeah right so we can rejoice Romans chapter 5 verses 3 to 5 not only so but we joy we we we, we can't stop trade we rejoice in sufferings knowing that sufferings produce endurance and endurance produces approved character. And approved character produces hope. Hope doesn't make a shame because of the love of God that's shed abroad in our hearts through the Holy Spirit who is given to us. And notice that he's just summarized in those three verses what we're saying here in Romans 8. Are you with me here? So if you want to understand Romans 8, 18 to 39, memorize Romans 5, 3 to 5. You got it. So the Holy Spirit, first of all, first thing that we can say is that we can know that all things work together for good because the Holy Spirit's interceding for us. Even when I sin, he's interceding for me. 
that I will get out of that sin Christ-likeness? How great is the God I serve who can take my sin and turn it into an occasion to produce the likeness of Christ in me? But there's more. We said at the end of verse 28, it's all according to his purpose. Well, how do I know what his purpose is? Well, verse 29 and 30. Now let's do it outright. For whom he foreknew. Now that creates problems. So what does it mean? What does it mean that God foreknew us? Well, the first thing is the word foreknow is derived from the word know. (laughs) K-N-O-W, yes? And know in English and Hebrew and Greek works the same way, remarkably enough. If I say to you, um, I know algebra, number one, I'd be lying. Number two, (laughs) what would you think I mean by I know algebra? I understand how it works and I know how to use it. Um, So I know facts, in effect, yes? But if I say, I know Abraham Lincoln, what will you say to me? You may know about him, but you don't know him. Greek and Hebrew and and English all do the same thing with no. When you know a fact, it means one thing. When you know a person, it means another. What is foreknown here in verse 29? But is it, what is foreknown? A person, people. What does it mean to know people? Relationship. So the, the issue here, there's a, a quotation or an, a reference to Oive, uh, a reference to Acts 26.5. There Paul says, same person who's writing this book says in Acts 26.5, the, the, the Pharisees who are here have known me for a long time. They've known me up, uh, before this time in which I now live. Are you with me? Yes? The point is that God established a relationship with you before you were born. And a lot before you were born, and I'll show you that as we go. There are some people that God set his affections on and determined to establish a relationship before they were even born. Jeremiah chapter 1, before you were born, I knew you. Yes? So there are some people who are foreknown. They're, that God set his affections on them before they even came into existence. And for these people, the second part of the, of the chain here in verses 29 and 30 is he marked out a destination for them. The word in Greek, uh, horizo, is the pro-horizo is the word that's predestined in your text. Um, Horizo is the source of our word horizon. The horizon marks out the boundary between what we can see of earth and what we can see of the sky. Yes? And that's what horizo means, to mark out a line, to mark out a boundary. So God has marked out, a, a, in this case, a destiny for us. What is the destiny that he's marked out? Look at the text. To be conformed to the image of his son. Are you with me here? So from, at some point, 
uh, in God's experience. And I, when I say that, that really doesn't say anything meaningful, <laughs> except it's an analogy that we can, we can kind of enter into. At some point in God's experience, he determined to enter into a relationship with certain people, people who will love him. Yes? And he marked out a destiny for them to become like his son. But there was a reason for that. What's the reason? Look there in verse 29. What's the reason for marking out that destiny? Yeah. This is all to serve the greatness of Jesus. Jesus is going to be a person who will be reflected in billions of human beings. Yes? I'm, I'm intrigued by this. Uh, Jesus, being an infinite person himself, uh, is, is uh, incapable of being reflected in any one single human being. So he has to have billions who reflect him, and they only give part of the revelation. That would suggest to me, I, I, I don't know how people go about how shepherds name sheep and goats. Do you name goats? I don't know. Or maybe you name only sheep. But um, when, they, when they name sheep, uh, probably some characteristic of the sheep would be a part of the process of naming, yes? So just think, some aspect of the, of the character of Jesus will be so reflected in you that it's uniquely reflected in you and in nobody else. And that may be your new name that's written down in heaven. Wouldn't that be something? And everybody who, who calls upon you by name will be calling upon that particular aspect of the being of Jesus. I, I, that's all almond. There's nothing in scripture that says that. But I just I just wonder about these things. So potentially, um, that that's a whole different study. So verse uh, twenty nine goes on. Is it twenty nine that goes on? Uh, he marked out for destiny to become conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the among, uh, firstborn among many brothers. And of the ones whom God has foreknown and has marked out the destiny, he has, also, he has also called them. Look back at verse 28. We know that all things work together for good to those who, who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. So the calling is according to the purpose of setting his affections on them at some point in his experience and marking out a destiny for them. Yes, ma'am. Oh, yes, absolutely. So that's why we're called, because he knows we're going to respond. No. No, because he chooses. Turn to 1 Corinthians 126. Uh, I'm told that Queen Elizabeth II calls this her verse. 1 Corinthians 126. For consider your calling, brothers, that there are not many wise. Not many noble, not many well-born, or powerful, not many well-born. But God has chosen what? Foolish. So, so why me, Lord? Chris Christofferson sang. Why me, Lord? Because I was foolish. Uh, Facebook now has a, a page for the town that I first lived in, which no longer exists. It's not a ghost town. It's just been swallowed up by the larger town. 
And I look back at those old pictures of that 1946 and 1930s, and, and I think, oh, my goodness, what a horrible little place that was. <laughs> but it was home. Are you with me? Uh, the, the speed limit on the major road that runs through the downtown area of that, until the 1960s, was three miles an hour. <laughs> I was still on the city books there. They had never changed it, but because I remember as a child seeing farmers come in from the, all around the region uh, on Saturday for, uh, for market day, and uh, if the old Ten Lizzie's were running through the, 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 the business district at 15 miles an hour, they'd backfire and scare the horses and cause a stampede, so they made it three miles an hour to keep everybody safe. Now, what a horrible little town that was, <laughs> but it was home, yes? <clears throat> Um, a lot of the folks that I went to high, went to elementary school with probably in jail because that was the kind of area that I grew up in. So why did God settle on me? I'm not a man of faith. I'm learning, but I'm not a man of faith. It's not my natural response. My natural response, and yours too, is not to trust God. So he doesn't choose us because he knows what we will do. Who makes the decision then? It's we who make the decision, not God. So God set his, his, his affection on us and marked out a destiny for us. Back to Romans eight twenty nine or 30 now. And then he called us. Then he, then he justified us. And whom he called, he also justified can you name me some people in the Old Testament who were justified? Absolutely. Uh, hmm? Abraham. Abraham. Old Testament. Oh, I'm sorry. Moses, good. Anybody earlier than Abraham? Uh, Noah. Noah, good. Yeah. Enoch. No. Um, anybody else? Abel. Abel. Adam. And possibly Adam. I think I have evidence for that for Adam and Eve. But I can sure I can say without question Abel because that's in Hebrews eleven. Okay. Now look at our verses here. Whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And whom he predestined, he also called. And whom he called, he also justified. Notice what tenses are these verbs? Past. Every one of them is past. So so when Abraham was 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 justified. Everybody was foreknown and predestined and called. Then if that's true for Abel, then this, this series of acts up through uh, uh, the first two for sure occur in eternity past, not in time. When it starts with the third one, it starts in our own personal experience. It's what we undergo. I can remember the time of God's calling in my life. Not to min- I have a strange call to ministry. I don't even believe in a call to ministry. I don't think there is one. Nothing taught in Scripture, in my opinion, tells that. Um, um, all of us are in ministry. It's just some of us are given the freedom to work full time in ministry, and others. Um, it's it's what the it's what the pastor said to the deacons. The deacons were chiding him because his children were so bad. And they, they said, you know, the reason your children are so bad is because you're paid to be good. 
And the pastor said, well, I may be paid to be, to be good, but you're good for nothing. <laughs> All of us are in ministry. There's, not, there's no such thing as somebody who's called to ministry, who's, who's uh, I'm sorry, uh, who, who is distinct among the children of God. All the children of God are called to ministry. Um, it's, our, it's our ministry that makes us like God. God is a God who serves as he rules. His very ruling is service. We don't think in those terms. We think of rule as power and, 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 um, and prestige and privilege. But God thinks of rule as service. God created light the first thing, not because he needed it, but because all of his creatures he was going to create needed them. Are you, are you with me here? He created dry land because the creatures were going to need dry land, and he created grass and fruit-bearing trees because his creatures were going to need it. Am I making sense to you? Then God serves as he rules, and our service is our likeness to Christ. But, but then, whom he justified, what's next? He what tense? Past tense. Folks, this is awfully important. God lives outside of time. We said this last week, I think. Uh, time is present within him, but he is, he is not in time himself. He's not determined by time. He understands time. He created it. Knows how to use it. Knows how we respond to it. But he's not determined by time. So that all time is equally present with him. Uh, look at Ephesians chapter 2. Um, yes, this is what I want. Verse 4, Ephesians 2, 4. But God who is rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. Um, uh, And though we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive with Christ, for by grace you you stand saved. And he raised us. And he seated us in the heavenlies in Christ Jesus. You are seated in rooms 241 and 242 or 242 and 243 and 4, whatever it is, here at uh, uh, Stonebriar. But you're also seated in the heavenlies in God's experience. Then how sure are you to achieve God's purpose? Pretty sure. I grew up with the idea that there are different kinds of will of God. There is the perfect will. The one that was most important for us was the perfect will of God. Because you want to be right in the middle of the perfect will of God for your life. Let me tell you somebody who was right in the middle, did exactly what God planned for him to do. Hmm? No, Judas did exactly what God planned for him to do. Uh, Peter said that the Old Testament predicted Judas's betrayal. Are you with me? Acts chapter 1, Peter said, 
This is what the, the prophets wrote. Judas was right smack dab in the middle of the perfect will of God for his life. And Jesus said about Judas, it would have been good for that man if he had not been born. So what does the perfect will of God mean? I don't think it really means anything. We have this idea that God has plan A, and the pastor I grew up under said something to this effect. He didn't say it quite this way, but this is my version of what he said. There's a plan A and a plan X, Y, Z. And if, you, if, you are, if you're really obedient, really responsive to the Holy Spirit, and you know, you can't hear the Holy Spirit very well. He speaks in a still, small voice. Remember Elijah? Amen? He, he, he doesn't talk very loud, so you've got, got to be really listening. When you, when you respond perfectly to everything that he says, or not, even if not perfectly, if you respond very well to all that God says, you'll be right in the middle of the perfect will of God for your life, and everything will be wonderful. And I even have family members, very close family members, who said, well, I, uh, when I got married, I married the man who was perfect in the will of God for me, and we've never had any problems in the uh, years that we've been married. And I thought, yeah right. Because <laughs> I grew up, I grew up around that woman. I know there were some problems. <laughs> I won't tell you who she was, <laughs> but she had a black belt. <laughs> so, so. Um, what are we even talking about when we're talking about the will of God? Well, we're talking about two or three things, and let me address them now because it will be critical for us to understand in this, in this context. The will of God is the plan of God that includes all things that come to pass. Uh, chapter 4 of Acts, Paul, is it Act 4 or 3 of Acts, Paul talks about, not Paul, the apostles talk about uh, Jesus being crucified according to the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God. This is the plan. Are you with me here? Is crucifixion something God said, oh my, you know, in this world, let's make a world where I can slaughter my son. Won't that be great? It'll just give me such joy and pleasure. Does that make any sense? No. But to reveal God's grace necessarily includes sin. You can't show grace where there's no sin. It necessarily includes sin, and it necessarily includes a sacrifice to redeem people from sin. Yes? So necessarily, the one who would go to be the redemption must be, as we talked in, maybe it was Thursday night, the God-man. I have to have a God-man. I have to have somebody who can die and pay, pay the penalty of the wrath of God. And somebody who, who, who is infinite and can pay off the infinite debt that we owe. So we don't sing a song that says, Jesus paid quite a bit. A fair amount to him we owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it pink. We sing a song that says, Jesus paid. And the amazing thing is, brothers and sisters, we don't owe a thing. We can't owe a thing. And yet, we owe him everything. Uh, so, the will of God first includes things that God, the, the, the plan of God deter, includes things that God despises in order to accomplish an excellent goal. Because he's wise, he always adapts the best means 
to accomplish the best mean, uh, the best goals. Yes? So the plan of God includes things that he hates, sin, the death of his son. Yes? Then there's a second kind of way. Just uh, Let me go through this and then we'll get back. There's a second kind of way we use the word will. The will of God is his will for his creatures. The commandments of God are his will for his creatures. But God is not subject to his own law. Uh, who, what was the specific relationship between Abraham and Sarah? What was the specific family relationship between them? And? Yeah. Not cousins. They're half brother and half sister. And that's prohibited in the law of Moses. What is required when somebody commits murder, premeditated murder? Death. Name me somebody famous in the Old Testament who committed murder. Moses did. David did. Which one of them was put to death? Moses or David? Which one of them was put to death for murder? Neither one. Neither one? But God, for his own purposes, determines not to execute the penalty. So, so the, the law of God is not God's law for himself. He is not subordinate to it. He makes it. He is above it. And he need not follow his own law. The law is his will for his creatures. Are you with me here so far? Third, the will of God can be used for reference to the desires of God. There are things that desires that he has not planned. Ezekiel says, I take, I, I, uh, the Lord takes no delight in the death of the wicked. But does he keep all the wicked from dying? No. So there are things that he takes delight in that are his will, but not things that he's planned. In fact, in his plan are things that he, ab he abhors. Are you with me here? So where are we in this plan? Where are we in the will of God? Are we talking about the perfect will of God, the, uh, the um, a preceptive will of God, the decretive will of God? We haven't used these terms this morning, but that's what we're talking about. The decree is the plan. The precept is the law uh, or the desire of God. Where, where are we in talking about this in Romans 8, 18 to 39? Well, we're talking about the plan, folks. And the plan is in a world in which God intends to reveal grace. There will be sin. And in a world where there is sin, there will be a redeemer. And when that redeemer redeems, he will redeem some, but not all. Why won't he redeem all? Well, there's a fundamental reason. I think I know it, folks. If all got grace equally, you couldn't tell it was grace. It would just sound. It would seem like just the goodness of, or the kindness of God, but I wouldn't know what I what I deserve. Have you have you any memory of First Corinthians six? One of the one of the jobs that God has for us down the road, First Corinthians six, is to judge the world. I have this notion, and it's again all Allman, it's not scripture at all, so you can doubt this if you want to. But I wonder, 
this, this doesn't even fit the culture of the first century very well at all, so it probably is wrong. But I wonder if each of us will have our own courtroom. And everybody brought before our bench will be somebody who's sinned exactly as we have. And over and over again, I have to pronounce the judgment upon people who have done the exact same sins I have committed. And I become aware of what I deserved, what Jesus did in paying for my sin. Yeah, but that sin was just so small. Yeah, but stealing a piece of fruit is pretty small. And it brought death on the whole human race. Yes? Brother, I put you off, Rick. No, that's okay. Uh, Paul's writing, when Paul was a Pharisee, when, yeah. when Paul was Saul, yeah. wouldn't you say in his theology that suffering was a bad thing? <laughs> you're out of favor with God, right? Yeah. All right, Paul's now reborn. He becomes Paul. Now, I don't know if he's writing to Gentiles Christians here. Largely Gentile Christians. He's saying, I'm telling you a whole new theology here that suffering, God can make good out of suffering. Don't look at it the way I looked at it previously. Yeah. And I can extend it. You're right on track. I can extend it. In the Roman Empire, leadership was never associated with suffering. So you, you never thought, oh boy, this guy suffered a lot. Let's make him a leader. But Paul is saying, no, I'm over. this is overturning the whole value system of the world. The world simply cannot enter into this. And folks, when you and I, in the midst of suffering, look at the end product and not the, not the immediate circumstances, and knowing the end product, you can, you can say, yes, but I trust God. First of all, that is the greatest testimony you will ever give to any lost person to the reality of God. How can you possibly be so so calm in this situation? How can you possibly have the joy you have in this situation? This is the work of the Spirit. Yeah. I also think today for us, 21st century, that we have the same mistaken idea about mm-hmm. suffering. Yep. We see suffering as something bad. Yeah. That is something that God <laughs> must be angry at us about. Yeah. Consequently, the whole idea of we're going to be glorified goes right out the window. Mm-hmm. If Paul's trying to say, you know, think of the glorification, think the glorification. You are glorified, yeah. you're glorified, you're going to be glorified in a special way. You don't lose that because you suffer. You go through summer drills in football to win a few football games, maybe a championship. How many NFL uh, alumni of uh, Super Bowl games are bankrupt today. Majority of them. The majority of them. They thought it was worth it, but now they're living with all the pain and the hardship of having competed in football. Yes? Yeah. Would suffering so much better. I think if Christians I know that had a misunderstanding of this, in fact, one gentleman in particular many years ago was dying of type of cancer, he thought that he was being afflicted because of something he yeah. did, or he didn't have enough faith. Yes. Or and he did and if only he had understood it in the right way, yeah. I gotta believe it would have helped him really understand your deal with it, right? So so there 
Yeah, absolutely. And I was just looking. I think I have a note on here. Um, uh, they well, I don't have the note. But the, the the end product of these three verses is this, folks. Every event in your life has been included in the plan of God. Look back at verse twenty-eight. We know that to those who love God, all things work together for good to those who are called according to His purpose. God had a plan. And his plan is going to succeed. So I have told students in the past, you're often worried, and this was true in, in, when I was teaching undergraduate, not so much in graduate school now, but, I, but I, I often had to deal with students who were, well, who should I marry? Who should I marry? Should, should, what, what major should I pursue? What career is God planning for me? How do I know? How do I make these choices? And the answer, folks, is it doesn't matter. If while you are getting married, you're becoming like Christ, it doesn't matter. And if while you're getting married and, and living in a married relationship, you're not becoming like Christ, it doesn't matter who you married. And it doesn't matter what your career is. Because if you're coming, becoming like Christ, Mother said something to me once, and I hope it's true. I hope it's true. Uh, I, I can't imagine that it's true. She said, I, I never worry about your future. I said, why? She said, because you want to, how, how did she say it? I can't remember. She said, you want to please the Lord. I just don't, I, I don't worry about your future. If, now, whether that was true or not is another thing. His mama is speaking, and so you just take it on that level. But the, the larger issue is if in your life, your, your search, if your, if your goal is to please the Lord, then it doesn't matter who you marry. And it doesn't matter what career you take. And it doesn't matter what city you live in. Are you with me here? It doesn't matter what house you buy. It doesn't matter what car you buy because you're seeking to serve the Lord. And in, in the seeking to serve the Lord, as you make those decisions, even when you make them wrongly, you will be brought back to seeking to serve the Lord. And that will put you through some hardships, Yes? But it, but it will always mean the outcome is going to be that you're going to be like Christ. And that means, folks, I know the will of God for you is to become like Jesus. And I know that if you're a child of God, you will achieve that goal because he has planned from eternity past to eternity future to make you like Christ. And you will be like Christ. You will be the unique one who can reflect that aspect of the, of the character of Jesus that only you are prepared to reflect. Linda, I'm sorry. That's okay. I think you just answered it, but I was just going to say, okay, if we are foreknown, predestined, justified, glorified, it doesn't matter how we mess up in life, and we're all going to mess up. Yes. But as long as we love the Lord, even though we sometimes blame him and turn against him because of circumstances, in the end, we're going to be yes. Um, turn back to Romans 6, just so that we clarify one thing here. And what Linda said, I'm not correcting, I am seconding what she just said. But in Romans 6, it is not grace that produces sin, it is grace that produces righteousness. Grace cannot produce sin. Romans 6.14. For the law shall not be, sin shall not be lord over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. 
when I'm living by the grace of God, I will misuse the grace of God at times for sin. But God in his love for us and in his grace toward us will so deal with me to bring me back to where I need to be. And folks, the problem is it's going to take time. That's the hard thing. I want the results quickly. We have, we have grown up in a, in a, um, a uh, marketing culture. And all, all marketing depends on creating a need and then offering a... Uh, actually, it, you find a... Uh, you find, you find a um, I can't stock trade here. Yeah, I, I, I create a, a product. That's what I want. I create a product, then I have to figure out how I'm going to market it and make a need in the, in the people so that they will buy it. And when you buy that product, it instantly solves your problem. <laughs> so if you have pimples, buy this and you will have no pimples and you'll have wonderful dates and it'll be marvelous. Your whole life will be, you'll be captain of the football team. And, yes? We want these quick results. The problem is, folks, how long does it take for a blade of grass to mature? From a scriptural point of view, the, the grass overnight. Yes? How long does it take a dog to mature? A couple, couple of years, maybe, yeah? One to two, a year for physical maturity. Really reaching, getting out of puppyhood gets a couple of years, maybe. Um, how long does it take a human to mature? Some never reach it. But, how, but, but to, to leave the joking out, how long does it take a human to mature? Uh, really, about 30 years. I heard somebody say one time, when you're, in your, when you're younger than 30, we'll just hire you to give you something to do. <laughs> you're, no, you're of no use to the company until after you're 30. It's 35. Oh, my goodness. So what, what are we suggesting? Are we suggesting that we are less valuable than a blade of grass? Or are we suggesting that the greater the destiny the longer the time of maturity. Then, folks, it's going to take time. And as we, as we said, this was again in the Hebrews study, um, in uh, Hebrews 5, turn there just a minute. We'll, we'll end with this. In Hebrews 5, uh, he says at verse 11, Pick it up at verse 12, Hebrews 5, 12. For indeed, though you ought to be teachers because of the time, you have need again that someone should teach you the first principles of the beginning of the oracles of God, and you become such as need milk and not solid food. But look at verse 14. Solid food is for the mature. Who? No, no. What follows next? Because of practice. When you're practicing a skill, you get it right from the very beginning and practice it perfectly every time. No? no. no? You never learn a skill that way, unless it's an, an exceedingly easy skill. Skills take repetition and mistakes, and somebody who can come in and say, now, the reason you did that, the reason you got that result is you did this, do it this way, and don't do it that way. Remember this? When you, but what are we getting skill in in verse 14? Discern, Discern what? Good from, Good from evil. 
when you make mistakes in discerning good and evil, you sometimes choose evil. But as a child of God, it doesn't have the same effect that it has when you're lost. As a child of God, it brings the loving discipline of God into your life. The loving discipline of God into your life. The grace of God into your life. I am never distanced from fellowship with God. I'm always drawn into fellowship with God. So that I am in the plan, folks. I'm going to be like Jesus. So are you. There is hope. But it's going to mean, in the meantime, between now and then, hardship. Some of it spiritual. Some of it physical. Some of it familial. Some of it social. Some of it financial. Yes? All the ways that we can suffer. But all the ways that we can suffer are included in the plan of God to produce the likeness of Christ in us. And since God never had a plan that failed, a little kid from the streets of Philadelphia said to the great Donald Barnhouse one night when he said things like, he was teaching on this passage, we sure are sitting pretty, aren't we, preacher? Let's close with prayer. Father, we are sitting pretty. But it's because of you. We, we, we take no confidence in ourselves. Our only confidence is in you and in the Spirit who is working in us and in the work that Jesus accomplished for us. Now, Father, give us hope in the midst of hardship. When the, when the suffering comes, all of us in this room, every one of us is either coming out of suffering or we're going into suffering or we're suffering. Um, so when the hardships come, turn our hearts to the confidence that we may have in you because of your wonderful plan that has included all of this together to bring about the honor of our great Savior so that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.